Good morning, folks, and thank you for tuning in to The Global Current, the School of Diplomacy and International Relations weekly podcast. This is your host, Valentino de Jarena. Welcome to the show. I'm glad to have you tuning in while we speak with two of our own CN Hall students, Annalisa Espino and Jackie Bellard. As the School of Diplomacy's premier podcast, we break down a new topic in international news each week and ask the question, is diplomacy the answer? This week's topic is about the United Nations COVID Global Vaccine Pact. Should the United States stay out of it? Who else is involved? Should we trust it? We will be dissecting this topic as each of our analysts argue their respective sides on whether diplomacy is the answer to this international dilemma. Later, we will have our briefer give us an update on what else is going on this week. Now, Erezu Shemsei will give us an overview of this week's topic. So in early September, the United Nations came to an agreement and stated that all nations should work together on a global scale to tackle the COVID-19 pandemic. A program known as COVAX came to be, which is also known as the Vaccine Alliance. This program was put in place to ease the globalization of a vaccine for the current global pandemic of COVID-19. The initiative aims to deliver 2 billion vaccine doses by the end of 2021, 245 million treatments, and 500 million tests. About 168 countries signed on to this alliance. It is in every country's national and economic self-interest to work together to massively expand access to the tests, the treatments, and support to a vaccine as a global public good, a people's vaccine available and affordable for everyone and everywhere, said Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General. However, a spokesman for the White House states that the U.S. will continue to help with coronavirus efforts, but refuses to work with the corrupt World Health Organization and China altogether. United States President Donald Trump has called the World Health Organization China-centric and therefore has been negligent to participate with the World Health Organization, and which has made proceedings difficult for the UN because the US normally invests a lot of money to these types of programs. The Washington Post explains that by the US's lack of global cooperation, this could hurt countries outside of the US because the COVAX initiative aims to vaccinate high-risk people in all countries first. This would be unsuccessful if the US discovers a vaccine first because there will be a hoarding of vaccinated people in only one country in the world. The idea of focusing on high-risk people everywhere first could lead to better global health outcomes and lower costs. All right, thank you so much, Arezu. Let's get to it. Thank you so much for each of you for joining me here virtually. So let's be honest, we all want to end these COVID restrictions. We all want to travel. We all want to go back to concerts, parties, in-person activities in general, you know, and we want to do that with less paranoia just to go back to normal. But can we really go back to normal unless there is a vaccine and everybody has it? So what does the COVID pack consist of and why should it be important to everybody? Why would the U.S. want to join or any country in general? If anybody wants to start first? Um, I can address that. Sure. So the COVAX Pact um, actually encompasses over 64% of the global population, which obviously that is a pretty huge chunk and that's going to affect us all whether these nations decide to join it or not. Most of the world's population is encompassed and unfortunately the United States is one of the only major countries 
that has not decided to join. And I think that it's extremely important for the United States to join because we are one of the global superpowers and morally it's our responsibility to set an example to other nations and to help countries that are less fortunate. You know, as humans, it's our duty to ensure that the most vulnerable are protected. And as the United States, we really have the power to impact that. We have the power to make sure that um, impoverished people in other countries aren't affected by COVID any longer. We don't know which country or which uh, medical organization is gonna be the first one to develop a vaccine. But by signing on to COVAX, we can ensure that everybody across the world gets it at the same time. This will help restore our world to normal even faster. This will help get the global health and the global economy back up. And because of this, I think it's really important that the U.S. signs on to the COVAX pact. Thank you, Jacqueline. I know, I think Russia and China did not join as well. You know, what can we say the same about them? You know, they're putting as many people as risk as the U.S. And it's kind of it's kind of crazy to me that, you know, being such populated areas like China that they have not joined. How dangerous is this for the rest of the world? So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about this one. Um, you are correct in that Russia and China have not joined the pact. Um, and while we can hope that at some point they do, because that would be extremely beneficial to um, helping the pandemic um, and getting these vaccines out to all these countries, there's um, not really necessarily anything we can do to force them. So instead, we should be focusing on what we can do and what our responsibility is. And I believe that it's our responsibility to try to be able to give out these vaccines, especially to help out lower income communities so that we are all given the vaccine at around the same time. And actually the PACT also works with the Gavi Vaccine Alliance, which is a program that's focused on getting immunizations to lower income communities. And if we partner with them, they have this experience already. And not only are we able to help these other countries, but we're also able to help ourselves. So even though China and Russia have not gotten involved yet, I don't think that's necessarily a reason that we shouldn't. And also, I think it's important to note that Russia and China have both agreed that if they're the first ones to develop the vaccine, they'll distribute the vaccines to other countries while simultaneously delivering it to their own populations. However, the United States has only agreed to treat their population first. And once our whole population has been vaccinated, then the current administration has decided to spread it to the rest of the globe. That is a very, very important point. Thank you, Jacqueline. Oh, wow. You know, because, you know, I'm thinking, say, the United States does not get the vaccine while the COVAX pack does. You know, we travel a lot. And there's still, I know there's some travel restrictions for people from the U.S., given our lack of control over the COVID-19 situation. People are still going to travel regardless. And I'm worried that some people in these countries that are getting the vaccine are just going to continue to get COVID because of these people who have not been vaccinated but are still traveling. You know, I'm thinking also, should the high prices of vaccines from the U.S. pharmaceutical companies be a concern? Like, say the U.S. finds a vaccine first, what do you think will be the outcome of that? 
Yeah, I think that is one of the another main reason why the U.S. should join this because, um, for one, if we bet on the wrong vaccine, our population will be in crisis. Let's say that we don't join this COVAX treaty and that some other country develops it first. What makes us think that if we didn't join this alliance, they would want to give us the vaccine? So that puts our whole population in danger. However, if we are the ones who develop the vaccine first and decide not to give it to other countries or just to give out limited supplies, then that could cause so many issues. It will worsen our relationships with other countries. It'll increase resentment. There might even be desperate behaviors such as um, blocking supply chains. It could strike bad short-term deals or declaring war. Like We don't know what these negative impacts could be. We don't know how it could drive up the prices. And overall, um, as the United States, as a global superpower, it should be our responsibility and we should want to help secure the national and global economy, the national and global health. You know, that's an interesting point you make that it's our responsibility, quote unquote. And I think about President Trump and his America first mentality. Are we really surprised that he decided not to join and I'm probably thinking that he's thinking, how would it look like if the people in the U.S. aren't the first ones to get it, like the whole population, if we do find it first? And then the most vulnerable people in the U.S. are not getting it first, and we're giving it out to other people in other countries. I think that it might be bad for his election. And overall domestic politics at this moment. You think that was one of the reasons why he didn't want to join or any other reasons that you think were important in making this decision? Um, I do want to touch on that. Like, while I obviously will not know what goes on through said and why he makes these specific decisions, I do want to talk a little bit about how we need a separation between our scientific community and our political community. We can't necessarily intertwine them all the time. And we need to put a lot more trust in the scientific community and listen to the things that they're telling us and the things that they are telling us are safe or are the best um, way to deal with things scientifically. And even if it might not be the political stance that let's say our president or our Congress necessarily want to take, if it's going to be the best option for our country to um, recover from this pandemic, then I think it's the option that we should be taking. So we should try to look at this um, without the Democrat or Republican or independent side and try to focus on how can we help the most amount of people, not only in the U.S., but also around the world. Thank you, Annalisa. I mean, you're totally right. I think so as well. You know, if, if, if we as a center of the world's economy can't help other people and you know how how are we going to continue our economic stance or just our just overall impact on the world if everybody else is in shambles and we're okay you know so it really is advisable to to join this COVID facts and i'm thinking if we do find a vaccine uh, can this be something else that disproportionately affects like low-income communities? I'm thinking about people who can't afford the vaccine if it comes out and we're not part of this pack. 
Um, just to clarify, do you mean specifically within the United States or do you mean globally? Um, both, really. Okay, um, I believe that within the United States, this will have an effect um, on income. As of right now, it looks like the government is trying to distribute it all. However, we know that at the beginning of production, um, supplies won't be available to the entire population. However, through the COVAX Treaty, they actually have a system called the Allocation Network, which would ensure that the first people to get the vaccines would be the health workers, then the elderly, and then those with health conditions, which is another benefit of joining the COVAX Treaty, is that you make sure that nobody gets pushed to the back of the line and that those people who are most vulnerable gets it first. Um, that is one of the main goals of the COVAX Treaty, is that people who are in worse financial situations, worse health situations, don't have to have such a negative effect of the virus. Oh, okay, that's great, thank you. Hmm. So one of the biggest questions people have asked regarding a vaccine is, should we trust it? Knowing that we don't know the long-term effects yet, are we supposed to just take it once it comes out? without waiting to see what happens with some long-term testing? So I'll talk a little bit about this. And it goes back to what I just said about making sure our scientific and political spheres are separate. Um, we need to be able to give our science experts and leaders the space and not feel political pressure to be able to do the work that they need to and to create this vaccine. And I feel like once everybody starts putting all this political pressure and kind of forcing them to lean one way or the other, that's when we get into kind of a negative area. So by being able to separate the two and we allow them to do the work that they do and that they study and are experts in, then we will know that the vaccine has been properly developed. And I think once we are able to actually trust our scientific experts to do this properly and we don't get so caught up in the politics of it and we know that the vaccine is safe, then it's definitely something that everybody should consider getting. Um, I'd like to add on to that just a little bit. You asked if um, the vaccine should be forced upon everyone or if that'll be a violation of people's free will. And I think that one of the most important aspects and values of the United States is that we're democratic. And unfortunately, as necessary as this vaccine might be, it would be so undemocratic of us to force people who don't want to or who feel uncomfortable with this vaccine to take it. I think our goal should be to inform the public about the vaccine, inform the public about the benefits to taking it and about the dangers of COVID-19 and then let them make that decision on their own. Um, hopefully our population would be wise enough to take the vaccine and to feel safe about it. However, if we did force them, that would be a complete violation of our rights and our values as United States citizens. Yes, definitely. You know, yeah, that was another question that was very big on people's minds, whether it should be forced upon people. Because, you know, my point, like, explicitly is can we really trust this vaccine given that there is no long-term studies on the vaccine yet you know even though it doesn't exist yet but i feel like that is something that's in the back of people's minds and we see this kind of a lot um 
or not really a lot, but it's been a big topic in anti-vaxxers and other type of vaccines. You know, that has, for some reason, gained a lot of popularity throughout the years that people don't want to be taking vaccines um, implemented or, I mean, forced upon by the government, even though they're, these vaccines at least have had long-term studies and um, are required for children, especially before they go to school, before they start mingling with other children. And it's kind of scary to think. And especially when I'm thinking um, that we're giving this to people who are most vulnerable. Uh, they're going to be the first ones to receive this vaccine that has not been studied necessarily fully yet. I trust the scientific community, uh, parts from politics, 100%, but that is science kind of testing and being able to study things long term, short term. So it's very, I don't know, it's skeptical for people, but I do hope that we come down and find something that will be effective. I think people no longer want to wear masks anymore. You know, I am tired of hearing this being a political issue versus an actual scientific issue. It's interesting. Do we have any thoughts or comments that we really wanted to bring up in this discussion that I might have not asked? Yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree with you on your last point. You mentioned that this has become so much more of a political issue than a scientific issue. And I think it's really important to realize that is that this is something that's affecting us, not just in the United States, but globally. The solution should be global and we really have to work together. We need to stop picking and choosing about whose side we're on here because the coronavirus affects everyone. Um, this isn't something that we could disagree with or ignore, and that is going to be one of the solutions, is finding that unity to be able to beat it together. And I, I also wanted to add that we, as like the United States, like to always show ourselves as a global superpower. And I think with that, the responsibility of also not only taking care of our country and our people, but also being able to help others around the world as much as we can. So if we do have the opportunity to join something like this pact and to be able to help others um, around the world, then it's definitely something that we should be doing. Yeah, definitely. And I think, especially since we have a lot of resources that other countries do not have, say uh, masks and disinfectants and a lot of more stable hospitals than other countries, especially developing countries, low-income countries, people in very remote areas that might need this vaccine way more than the people in the U.S. may need. Some people, of course, but, you know, having the resources we do have, being able to speak online like we are, and a lot of these other people have to go to work every single day and they are way more prone to catching the virus than a lot of other people in more developed countries. Now, we do have a responsibility to be able to help those who are in need. The question of the day really is, how can diplomacy assist the situation? Okay, I guess I could address that. Um, 
Honestly, I think when it comes to any global problem, diplomacy is the only answer. Um, unfortunately, like I just said, this isn't a this isn't a virus that discriminates against any of us, and it is a virus that's hitting all countries, not equally at this moment. However, it is something that is affecting the entire globe, and diplomacy by coming together, by pooling our resources, by making sure that we cooperate and have good relations, that is going to be the answer to this pandemic. Because unfortunately, um, the world kind of relies on each other. We're coming into an increased era of globalization, and what one country does affects the next country. All of our economies are tied together, our help is tied together, and if we want to come out of this coronavirus better and stronger than before, we need diplomacy to be able to get us there. Yeah, and to add on to that, one of the other aspects that diplomacy brings us is being able to learn from other countries and seeing how they're dealing with the coronavirus. So if they're doing things that maybe we haven't considered that could help our community, then that's also a benefit. Thank you so much, ladies. I completely agree. You know, the U.S. being a superpower that has been so influential for the last couple of years should really consider working alongside of other uh, countries, the United Nations and this whole COVAX packs, because we need to find a global solution because if it's, if it's not a global one, it's just going to be a problem for everybody still. So thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really glad to have the conversation. I'd like to thank our analysts again for being here with me, Annalisa and Jackie. This has been great. Thanks for taking the time out of your day to talk to us. Now let's tune in to this week's rundown brought to us by our briefer, Harezu. So since the United States president tested positive for coronavirus, the New York Times reported that stock markets have sunk. The economy has been unstable since the beginning of this pandemic, and investors are begging for an ounce of steadiness. However, with these coming news, times continue to be uncertain. Paul Donovan, the chief economist at UBS Global Wealth Management, states, after an initial reaction, the news is only likely to have a lasting market impact if it's seen as influencing to the election outcome or public health. On October 6th, Footage is seen of protesters storming into the parliament of Kyrgyzstan after a claim that the elections were rigged, reports BBC News. Groups of influential people close to the president have been accused of vote buying and voter intimidation. These protesters were furious with the rigging allegations and demanded the resignation of President Jinbekov. The police dispersed the crowds with water cannons and tear gas. As a result, one person died and 600 ended up injured. Protesters gained access to the building by climbing fences and by forcing the gates open. Later, smoke was seen coming out of the building. CNN reports that family of Paul Rusesa Begina, the former hotelier portrayed as a hero in a film about Rwanda's 1994 genocide on Thursday, called on the United States, the European Union, and Belgium to appeal for his release from prison in Rwanda. The agency said that Rusesa Begina is being arrested on the counts of being the founder, leader, and sponsor of violent armed extremist terror outfits. After the genocide, he created a patriotic front in Rwanda that became a threat to the president, Paul Kagame, and his administration. CNN states that protests in India's cities emerged after a teenager's death 
in an alleged rape case by four men was ruled out by the police. State police announced Thursday that she had not been raped and died because of strangling injuries. The suspects in the case remain in custody and still face murder charges. This sparked outrage because the initial story from the police stated that the 19-year-old girl had been gang raped. The body of the girl was later cremated. However, the chief of Delhi Commission of Women alleges that this was done without the family's consent. In response to the national outrage, India's main opposition party has claimed a cover-up in the case and called on the Uttar Pradesh's chief minister to resign. The Guardian reports that a Russian journalist named Irina Slavina set herself on fire and blamed it on the Federation after having her apartment searched by the police. She stated on her Facebook account right before her death, I ask you to blame the Russian Federation for my death. She worked for a local news outlet that prided itself on its non-censorship. She lit herself on fire in front of the local branch of the Interior Ministry in the city of Nizhny Novgorod. Over the past years, security officials have subjected her to endless persecution because of her opposition activities, said Dmitry Gudko, politician. Okay, that wraps up this week's show. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram for updates on upcoming shows. The show couldn't be made possible without executive producer Bella Fisher, assistant producer Jared Dang, technical producer Brittany Segura, assistant technical producer Jason Marieski, and our interview producer Tian Fan. I'm your host, Valentina Rejarena, and I thank you for tuning in. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University. Be sure to tune in every week for a new episode. Stay healthy and talk to you soon.